Welcome to Hancock Talks, your source for insights about life insurance trends and opportunities, focusing on tactics that can help drive your sales. This podcast is for financial professional use only. It is not intended for use with the public. This material is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide advice. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of John Hancock. Please listen to the important disclosures at the end of this podcast. Now, let's get started with your host, Karen Egan. Hello, welcome to Hancock Talks, and thanks for joining us. October is Estate Planning Awareness Month, and this October, that is particularly timely. Thanks to legislation introduced last month by the House Ways and Means Committee, this legislation threatens to change estate planning as we know it. There is still much that remains to be seen in terms of what may ultimately become law, but it's important to discuss the planning options available to our clients today and how we can build flexibility into those plans. So here with us today, we have three guests who've been following the legislative process very closely. Our very own Carly Brooks, who leads our advanced markets team here at John Hancock, and our very special guests and great partners, Michael Lamoya, who is Senior Vice President of Advanced Sales at Crump, and Michael Fontanini, who is Vice President of Advanced Sales and Design with Lion Street. Welcome, Carly, Michael, and Michael. Okay, great. Thank you, Karen. Before we dive into the proposals, I would like to just spend a minute to talk a little bit about the political process that's surrounding this bill. I've heard this referred to as a political maze, and we know that these increases are are to offset part of spending for a larger infrastructure spending bill, and that the proposals that we've seen come out of the House are not going to be simply rubber stamped by the Senate. So, Michael Moya, maybe if you want to just spend a minute to walk us through how that process works. No, I appreciate it. And and to be specific, we're going to focus on infrastructure. I'm going to call it infrastructure two, because infrastructure one right now is already kind of cleared as far as a bipartisan side. So infrastructure two, as you made comment, is we've seen some some proposals, and I'm using the word proposal bills from from the House. We're still waiting on the Senate side. Um, and why is that important? I think somebody already thinks that, hey, if it comes through the, the House side, the Senate automatically picks it up as you made comment. This is a political maze or maybe almost a game of (laughs) whack-a-mole lately Um, because there's a lot of different dynamics happening behind the scenes. And the result is, and maybe this process specifically you're going to see, and I'm going to try to keep this a little bit shorter, we're going to see something on the Senate side, but it won't go through the committee side. Assuming whatever comes through the Senate side, if it matches the House side, then we're good to go. If not, we're going to have some method of trying to combine the two. And that combination is still what we're waiting for in the Senate, what we see out of the House. Eventually, that passage will go to the president. And then that's a key date for a lot of these provisions we're going to be talking about, because that's the key date of date of enactment. So as we have this conversation today, keep that in mind when we talk about date of enactment versus uh, next year. And that's going to be this process we're going to have to work backwards from. Great. Thank you. And and that's a good point, too, that you mentioned about enactment date. I think there was some confusion of what the enactment date might mean. Um, So I think it's been clarified that the enactment date would be the date that the legislation is passed. So thank you for clarifying that. Mike Fontini, any idea on when we could expect to see these changes enacted? Well, Carly, predicting congressional action is a lot like predicting the weather these days. We just don't know which way the winds are going to blow. But I think uh, we have a pretty good indication of the direction that they're heading. Um, And 
although I, I can't speak with any confidence regarding specific passage dates or anything like that. Um, what I can say is based on our, on the feedback we've heard from our friends over at Finseca, uh, formerly AALU, for those that have not gotten uh, introduced to their new uh, name after they merged with Gamma, uh, who are having conversations daily with policymakers in Congress. What they've told us is that they're expecting probably within the next six weeks is the likely time frame to see a final bill come out that actually does pass both houses of Congress. And I think end of November is what they are hearing as the ideal goal for um, the Democrats to pass something uh, through both chambers. Uh, we'll probably within the next couple of weeks, maybe next two to three weeks, maybe see an updated bill come out of uh, as it continues to make its way through committee from the you know initial uh, draft that was released by the House Ways and Means Committee a few weeks ago. Probably see an update come out here uh, pretty soon, which to Michael Moya's point, we'll probably start to kind of see where that convergence might you know start point might start to come. Great. That's super helpful. And I think it's a little bit of a moving target then at this point. So the, the, the real answer is nobody knows, but it, it's coming. And I think for our listeners, really why we're here today is focus on what we can be doing now. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of a lot that still remains to be seen in terms of what might ultimately pass. But there have been a number of proposals specifically related to estate planning that would really impact estate planning as we know it and sort of change some of those tried and true estate planning techniques. So just to summarize a couple that we, we've seen, you know, we could potentially be seeing the highest gift tax exemptions in history currently at $11.7 million cut in half at the end of this year. So we know that that's scheduled to sunset at the end of 2025. The proposals could move that up to the end of this year, meaning on January 1st, 2022, we could be looking at an exemption of uh, what we've estimated to be $6,030,000. So that's you know pretty big drop for clients where we may be having conversations about use it or lose it and, and taking advantage of exemption gifts prior to those exemptions potentially being cut in half. Similarly, we could be seeing changes to the valuation discounts. So we know that gifting or transferring assets that are able to take advantage of valuation discounts for things like minority interests or lack of control or lack of marketability, we could see some elimination or limits on valuation discounts for non-business assets as well. So a lot of things that still remain to be seen. But the big one that I really want to spend some time on today, because I know that both of you, like me and our advanced markets group, have been getting tons of questions. And uh, that's related to the grantor trust rules. And when I say grantor trusts, I'm talking about intentionally defective grantor trusts. We, we commonly call that a grantor trust. Before we dive into those proposals, though, I do think just for our listeners who might not be familiar with those rules, let's talk about just quickly, what is a grantor trust under current law and why is that beneficial? Mike F., I'm going to turn that one over to you. Perfect. Yeah. So a grantor trust, or as I, I like to call them irrevocable grantor trusts, because you have revocable ones and irrevocable ones. And the irrevocable ones are the ones that are kind of uh, under the, the microscope right now. An irrevocable grantor trust is basically a trust that for state and gift tax purposes is treated as separate from the grantor, meaning any transfers to that trust are treated as gifts and the assets in the trust are outside the grantor's gross estate. But for income tax purposes, the grantor is treated as owning all of those trusts. Um, so in other words, if I'm the grantor, it's me for income tax purposes, but it's not me for estate and gift tax purposes. And at the end of the day, what that means from a planning perspective is that the grantor is personally liable for paying all of the taxes on the trust's taxable income personally, as if it were his or her income received personally. So he or she reports that income on his or her own personal tax return. And uh, therefore the trust does not pay any of its own income taxes itself until grantor trust status terminates when the grantor dies or during life if sooner. 
And uh, because it's treated as the grantor for income tax purposes, the IRS has ruled with a revenue ruling back in the 80s that uh, any transactions between the grantor and the grantor trust are ignored for income tax purposes because it's treated as though the transaction was between the grantor and himself or herself. So therefore, if the grantor were to sell an asset to the trust in exchange for a note, for example, a very common estate planning technique, there's no gain recognition that happens on that sale because the grantor is treated as having sold the asset to himself, in which case there's no recognition event. And there's no taxable income attributable to the interest that's paid by the trust back to the grantor or anything like that, again, because it's treated as though the grantor is paying that income back to himself. Uh, the grantor can also substitute assets back and forth by swapping assets of equivalent value without any uh, income tax recognition or anything like that as well. So there's a lot of uh, very powerful estate planning benefits that have been exploited as a result of the grant or trust rules uh, and that dichotomy between the treatment for estate and gift tax purposes and the treatment for income tax purposes. And it's really those, those two things that I mentioned, the payment of the taxes, uh, by the way, and the payment of the taxes, I forgot to mention, that are owed by the trust or generated by the trust personally by the grantor is not treated as an additional gift to the trust by the grantor, even though it has the mathematical effect of an additional gift to the trust. So it's a very powerful estate planning strategy that's been exploited over the last several decades. And then also the ability to sell assets that trust and swap assets back and forth without, without income recognition really are the two primary aspects of the grantor trust rules that Congress really is going after right now to try to take away because of how powerful they are from a wealth transfer perspective. Great. Thank you so much. And I think that was a great summary on what is a grantor trust and grantor trusts have been used, as you said, for a variety of planning reasons. And they, they help to allow for additional flexibility within the trust language. And you know, we see, as we'll talk about momentarily, that many trusts that we talk about frequently, like islets and spousal access trusts or GRATs, are also grantor trusts. So, so we'll talk about that momentarily. Before we do that, let's talk about what these proposed changes are saying to the grantor trust rules. So we have two proposed code sections that really would flip grantor trust planning on its head. You know, at this point, I think that if if enacted, we could potentially see you know, a situation where grantor trusts are no longer going to be used. So it's, it could really spell the end of grantor trust planning as we know it. So, um, Michael, a over to you to uh, talk about the proposed changes. Yeah, and I want to I want to emphasize the word proposed. Because one of the comments I keep getting from everybody is that, hey, we how do we comply with the new law? What are we going to do with the new law? We don't know what the final rule will be. So let me kind of be very specific on what's been at least published from the House. Again, earlier my comment was about the Senate. We're still waiting to see what that is. And also a comment kind of jumping on a little bit with uh, Michael Pagnini made comment to Fonseca. There's conversations behind the scenes with tax writers what may be, you know, an option based upon at least what's been proposed out of the house. So the current house proposal for all intents and purposes would, as you may comment, flip everything on its head, meaning to the degree you made a transfer to a trust of which case you're still deemed the owner for income tax purposes, that that would be included in the grantor. And I'm using the word grantor in this set of facts as the income term, not set lore for the person who set it up. I mean, there's going to be certain trusts where the person put money in there may not be the income taxpayer. So just be very cognizant when I use the word grantor, we're talking about the individual for income tax purposes, and that'll be included in their estate. Or to the degree that they turn off the grantor status, there's a transfer. Or if there's a distribution of that trust, there'll be a, a, a transfer. Now, they are very specific. There's two important parts to this. 
One, this rule will be based upon date of enactment. So trust created after the date of enactment. Or the bigger one, which is going to be impact, I know we're going to talk a lot more about that, is contributions to a trust that was created prior to date of enactment, but has a contribution thereafter. So that's part one of the rule. The second provision that kind of flipped everything on its head, and, and Michael made comment to this too, which was you could do certain transactions with prior to this kind of conversation with a grantor trust that would have been ignored for income tax purposes. And that 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 85 revenue ruling has been a very important revenue ruling because it has afforded a lot of flexibility to do estate planning, but more importantly, also just manage assets for clients. So what that really said prior was, hey, if you did a transaction, i.e. you transferred something and you either did a sale or you exchanged something that, that would have been ignored, that for all intents and purposes would be um, I'm going to use the word uh, revoked, said differently. If you were the grantor, and normally we would have said for income tax purposes, it would have been the same person. Here, they're going to treat it like it's a third party situation, meaning it would have been a sales structure. So the other part to this, and I do want to make a sub note, as it was currently written in the proposal, could have implied that this transaction would have created a grandfathering for things like sale to grantor trust after day of enactment. So my first comment on the set of rules I mentioned before, meaning, hey, I said put money into a grantor trust, a slow grantor trust, there, there would be some grandfathering, just as long as you don't put more money in there. But two, if you have a grantor trust as an establishment, They've already made comment. In fact, the uh, JCT report that was published last week, there was even a footnote that, hey, there's a technical correction here. The intent is if you had a trust and you do a transaction after day of enactment, you're going to trigger that second set of rules or said differently, you're going to have an income tax issue. So just be cognizant of that. And they're going to have a modification as far as the loss rules to under uh, 267. So this will flip a lot of the conversations for estate planning. This is going to flip the conversations, how do you pay for life insurance inside a trust? This is going to flip the conversation of what does it all mean that I have a trust that I need to consider on what that impact will be going forward. So it is going to be very, very dramatic if this entire proposal comes to fruition, meaning it actually mirrors what the Senate's going to propose and actually becomes law. But I said, there's a big if, because there's been a lot of dialogue behind the scenes on what could be some alternatives. And those alternatives, we just don't know yet. But um, as they say, you know, more to come, more to come. Absolutely. So to summarize, we have two new code sections. But the, the big one, 2901, is going to result in trust assets in a grantor trust created after the day of enactment, basically bringing assets back into the grantor's estate at death. Existing grantor trusts receive some grandfathering. But what's concerning is that contributions made after the fact could result in at least partial inclusion. It's not entirely clear how the math would work on that. But as we know, islets typically are grantor trusts. And so if you have clients that have existing grantor islets, they would receive some grandfathering under these rules. But as we know, oftentimes islets have ongoing premiums that are due on the policies that are going to be owned inside of that trust. And so gifting to the trust after the enactment date would cause partial inclusion. So that's, I think, sort of the crux of what's causing a lot of concern for uh, for the producers that we work with and some of the financial professionals that we've been working with and where we're trying to help guide discussions on what we could possibly do before enactment. So 
you know, I'd like to hear from both of you on this because I think there's a few different planning ideas. I'll start by saying the first thing here that I've been saying is, you know, I think this is a great opportunity for some policy review. So ideally, the, the client's attorneys are going to be really involved in these discussions and looking at some of the trust language and, and some, answering some of the questions revolving around um, the nuances of trust law. But, you know, I think for, as insurance professionals, we have a huge opportunity to be taking a look at the underlying policies and those trusts too, to try to see if there's things we can be doing. But uh, Mike, I'll turn it over to you first. Yeah, I think th this has been comprising probably in 90% of my conversations with folks uh, since this came out, not so much about some of the other changes that were uh, in tax increases that were in the proposal, but really around, uh, you know, what to do with islets. Because as you mentioned, Carly, most islets are currently structured as grantor trusts either intentionally or, or even, you know, incidentally, because one of the statutory grantor trust powers under code section 677 is the power to use trust income to pay premiums on a policy insuring the grantor or the grantor spouse. And the extent to which income is used to pay premiums determines the extent to which it becomes a grantor trust. So that, that's one issue that can inadvertently make a non-grantor trust a grantor trust is if it uses trust income under current law to pay premiums on a policy insuring the grantor or the grantor spouse. And then oftentimes there's other grantor trust powers that aren't related specifically to life insurance, but are incorporated into islets, which can make it a grantor trust, such as putting a spouse as an income beneficiary on the on the uh, on the islet or having a non-adverse party be uh, the trustee and things like that. There's a lot of, it's a spider web, uh, it seems like the grantor trust rules that is, and you can inadvertently cause grantor trust status through one of the other grantor trust statutes, even, even if you're just focusing on one in particular, uh, like the uh, one to, that allows for the, or that uh, uh, deals with the, pa the power to pay premiums from trust income. So the real issue is, 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 is it important for the trust to maintain its grantor trust status after the date of enactment? For example, uh, I'm working on a case right now where the client wants to gift income producing real estate to the trust and have that produce income and cash flow to be used to pay future premiums which if you gift an income producing asset to a trust, if it's designed as a non-grantor trust now, but that trust uses income in the future to pay premiums, that could inadvertently trigger grantor trust status in the future. So um, it, it may make a lot of sense in a scenario like that to make sure that trust is drafted and funded with that gift prior to the date of enactment so that the grant the grantor trust status can be grandfathered and not trigger any any inadvertent issues there. Um, so that, that's one scenario where we are where we're where we are commonly looking at you know making gifts to trust and using the income from those gifts to fund premiums and a consideration there under the literal wording of the current proposal uh, itself and how that could impact ILA planning going forward. The alternative to that is to create a non-grantor trust and have that trust by life insurance, which can be done, but you have to be very careful not to accidentally or inadvertently create uh, or cause grantor trust status as a result of any of those, those powers that I mentioned or, or any of the others under the code that I didn't mention. Um, and uh, if you make it a non-grantor trust, then you can still buy a policy in that trust, but you may be limited to funding the premiums through gifts of cash only, either a lump sum gift that, that goes immediately into the policy as a single premium or annual gifts of cash so that the trust is not investing any of that income or uh, excuse me, any of that cash or holding any of that cash that could generate income, which could be uh, then used inadvertently in the future to pay premiums and accidentally cause grantor trust status. So if it's a non-grantor trust, which means it would still be outside of the grantor's estate, even under the, the current proposal, you would have to be limited, very limited in terms of how those gifts are being made and the premiums are being funded there. Great, all good points. And I think that this is going to be, um, you know, as we look towards 
planning after these rules could go into effect, um, you know, I think that's really also going to be important too, so that we're making sure that we're not inadvertently triggering grantor trust status or or running afoul of any of those rules. So thank you for that summary. Mike, A, anything you'd add there? Yeah. And just for the listeners, I'll be very specific. So in, in this tripwire, I think it's probably the best way to say it, this 677 made comment too. The rule actually says it may be used. And the income comment is it's not. So for those who know trust rules, there's income and that gets confused. There's taxable income and there's fiduciary income. I want to make a very point of this because unfortunately, some of the conversations from lawyers say, we'll just we'll just do non-grantor trust and we'll just put the life insurance in there. Why is that important? Because sometimes people believe, hey, I can just write around this by just saying just use principal. And why I make the differential is principal is fiduciary terminology, not taxable income terminology. So there's going to be some challenges. And back to Michael Michael's point, which was there may be a point where you're going to have to reconsider on how premiums are being paid, meaning maybe you go straight to the insurance carrier and you're going to have to modify the crummy letters. That taxable income component, because the common standard is set up an account, even if it's not interest bearing, there's something there. We just got to, there's going to be consideration being given to it. Part two is, I think, which is a very, very, very important part of this. We saw gift exemption levels that are at a higher level that will be going away. Now, it's going to go either at the end of this year or at the end of 2025. Why wait if there was an intent to move those assets either way? And if it is income producing, what better thing to do to do it now? To take advantage of those other details we talked about, which is the discounting, which is also the valuation rules, which is all the other things that may be inherent in setting that trust up for the future. Because it's going to be challenging to do it. And candidly, who knows what the rules are going to be? Take advantage of the rules now as we have them. So that income producing asset will be there. If there's a concern or an idea, then I know John Hancock has an amazing library of pieces on split dollar. Split dollar will be your friend. Now, that could mean a couple different things. And I make comments at times, if you don't like the rule, wait four years, it'll change again. Who knows what will happen? We don't know what will happen and the why. I'm definitely not making any forecasts what it could be. What I do know is there's flexibility in split dollar that we don't have with other loans, i.e. you can have a lifetime loan. So that consideration, I think, is something that people are going to start thinking through, whether even if they have a grantor trust now, even if there's resources in there, because one of the important points that now, even if you have a grandfathered grantor trust, then maybe you did a sale to that grantor trust, you're going to have to pay back that note with cash now. It can't be in kind, which means if you were using the cash to pay the premium, that could be a challenge. But if you're using split dollar and sometimes how balancing this differential between the tax rules, I think that's going to be an advantageous structure that I think a lot more people are going to start to be paying attention to. So for those that are not familiar with the techniques and conversations, like I said, I know John Hancock has amazing pieces. We, we reference them all the time. We appreciate that. I know your software has that. So thank you. But more importantly, just be, be aware that that is an option to be considered behind the scenes. Those are all great points. So to summarize, you know, I think if clients have existing grantor trusts, there's a few things we could do now. Taking advantage of large gift tax exemptions before they could be reduced at the end of this year, making lump sum gifts. If clients have grantor trusts in place, so those trusts could be really 
a great time to be having conversations about that. For those clients that are just not able to make the large gifts, um, you know, another thing I've been talking about is if we do switch to loans or economic benefit after the fact where we're going to want to be paying interest or economic benefit under a split dollar arrangement, possibly seeding the trust right now. So doing a smaller seed gift to the trust so that you can pay interest or economic benefit after the fact. So there will be solutions and, you know, really to just kind of wrap it up and summarize here today. I think the key takeaway, at least for me, is that a lot remains to be seen. First of all, that's kind of the first takeaway. But secondly, irrevocable trust planning is still going to be possible. We may be limited to non-grantor trusts. So how trusts are drafted and how they're administered will change. But you know, having islets or non-grantor islets funded with life insurance might not only be viable still, but it might really be integral to planning going forward where we could have a situation where now you have concern about having grantor trust being partially included or having reduced exemptions where there's increased needs for liquidity or where we know that trust assets don't receive a step up in basis at death where life insurance can provide as a, basically a functional equivalent to a step up in basis. So I think in, in many ways, we're very well positioned one thing that I would sort of caution against is that if you know, we're following this really closely on our end, if we do see changes enacted, I think it's going to be really important for us to do a deep dive in terms of what that actually means before making any drastic changes to plans because you don't want to unintentionally you know, either trigger grantor status or result make contributions that are gifts. So there are some inconsistencies, I think, in terms of how these things have been proposed. And a lot does remain to be seen. But I think in many ways, it's a really great time to be getting in front of clients and can add a lot of value and really help to build trust and credibility for our clients when we're reaching out and doing a review, not only from a trust planning perspective, but also taking a look at that life insurance and doing policy reviews. So before we wrap it up today, are there any other final words or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with us? Mike F, if you want to go first. Yeah, I, as concerning as the current proposals are and how they could inadvertently affect um, life insurance and trusts, uh, based on the conversations that Fonseca has been having with members of Congress and what they've been providing to us as feedback, it's, it's a pretty abundantly clear that it's not Congress's intent to attack life insurance with all of this. And they are pretty hopeful. Again, it's like predicting the weather, so we don't know what the outcome is going to be, but they're pretty hopeful that they'll be able to successfully lobby for some type of an exception or an exclusion with respect to life insurance as it pertains to some of these changes that they want to make to grant or trust laws. So uh, I think that, you know, although the current wording is very concerning and how it could affect life insurance trust, I think at the end of the day, we'll probably have a favorable outcome um, uh, as it pertains to any final legislation that comes out. And we probably won't see life insurance adversely impacted by it. But again, it still all remains to be seen. And that's based on the folks that are on the front lines having uh, conversations with Congress daily. So maybe I can piggyback on that. I think there's another part to this, which is which is important too. The conversation is not about changing the taxation of life insurance at the moment. So I want to be very specific that there's still huge income tax benefits to this. Second thing is, is to the degree that you can design the trust properly and fund it properly, then we don't have the estate inclusion issues. But this will be a very unique asset going forward. One of the advantages that we haven't talked about, which is I think important, is the step up and basis rule conversation. So there's still going to be an interplay between that. But the one thing that does get a basis adjustment in trust is the life insurance. So to wherever the results go, one of the sub comments I think I've made is that actually people are paying attention to their life insurance again. Too often they buy their insurances, they sit it in a drawer and they don't pay attention to it. But yet how many times you ask the same client when they look at their investment statement 
every day, every month, whatever. So hopefully we can get people back to an opportunity to say, let's pay attention to the insurance, which may, by the way, be the largest asset they have. Sometimes it just gets ignored the way it gets put in place. So just keep that in mind. I'm, I'm looking forward to the continued conversation and made comment earlier because whatever rules we have, they're subject to change again. And I know sometimes this is the word, there's always death and taxes. Uh, we happen to be involved in both of those uh, categories. But the one thing that we can say is, as we plan for this, getting people to pay attention to their estates and their planning for their family is always a good thing. Sometimes it just takes change in the law to have that happen. So this is a positive. I look at this all the way across the board. Absolutely. I think there's going to be tremendous opportunity for us to add value for our clients in these conversations. And I can't thank you both enough for taking the time today. I always love the opportunity to work with both of you. You have incredible knowledge in this area, and um, we greatly appreciate our partnership with both Crump and Lion Street. So thank you very much. I do also want to point out that we recorded this show on October 7th. So if you're listening to this after October 7th, these legislative updates that we talked about today are evolving very quickly. Please reach out to our advanced markets team at John Hancock for the most up-to-date information. We are doing our best to bring you breaking news as we receive it and and um, also have an abundance of different tools and resources, including online calculators, our John Hancock Solutions module, including our gifting module that can compare gifting to a trust and investing versus gifting to a trust and purchasing life insurance and really highlight some of those benefits. And then I always like to say too, I think our number one resource in advanced markets is our human capital. We have a team of attorneys and consultants on staff that are here to answer your questions and help navigate these uncertainties alongside you. So thank you all very much. With that, I'll turn it back over to Karen. Such great information. And we look forward to seeing how all of this plays out in the coming months. So thank you, Carly, Michael, and Michael for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners for joining in for this episode of Hancock Talks. For more resources on today's topic, as well as access to more information about how to grow your insurance business, visit jhsaleshub.com. And don't forget, download and subscribe to the show on iTunes to get new episodes as they become available. Thanks for listening. This material is not intended to provide financial, investment, insurance, legal, accounting, or tax advice. It is intended to promote awareness and is for educational purposes only. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of John Hancock. Anyone interested in these transactions or topics may want to seek advice based on his or her particular circumstances from independent professionals and examine the legal, tax, accounting, or financial aspects of these topics. Trust should be drafted by an attorney familiar with such matters in order to take into account income and estate tax laws, including the generation skipping tax. Failure to do so could result in adverse tax treatment of trust proceeds. There can be costs associated with drafting a trust. Comments on taxation are based on John Hancock's understanding of current tax law, which is subject to change. No legal, tax, or accounting advice can be given by John Hancock, its agents, employees, or licensed agents. Prospective purchasers should consult their tax professional 
for details. Loans and withdrawals will reduce the death benefit cash surrender value and may cause the policy to lapse. Lapse or surrender of a policy with the loan may cause the recognition of taxable income. Policies classified as modified endowment contracts may be subject to tax when a loan or withdrawal is made. A federal tax penalty of 10% may also apply if the loan or withdrawal is taken prior to age 59 and a half. Guaranteed product features are dependent upon minimum premium requirements and the claims paying ability of the issuer. Life insurance products are issued by John Hancock Life Insurance Company USA, Boston Mass 02116, not licensed in New York, and John Hancock Life Insurance Company of New York, Valhalla, New York 10595. This recorded material may have been recorded to support the promotion or marketing of the topics addressed in this recorded material. Individuals interested in the topics discussed should consult with their professional advisors to examine legal, tax, accounting, or financial aspects of these topics. MLINY 100721571 one